Thank you, Sue Ann. Nice job. You can give her a hand. All right, I'm going to talk to you about my favorite conversation to have with people. This is really it. I'm dead serious. My favorite conversation to have with people goes like this. Um, people will come up to me and they'll say, Jonathan, uh, I don't believe in God anymore. And I'll say, why? Why don't you believe in God? And they'll say, well, first of all, um, there's no proof that God even exists. And I'm like, all right, fair enough. You know, fair enough. Why else don't you believe in God? And people will say, I don't believe in God because I can't reconcile the violent God of the Old Testament uh, in my life. Why would a God want to like, kill uh, entire countries? Why would that God want to do that? And I'm like, hmm, very true, you know? And then people are like, uh, I don't believe in God because I can't believe that a God would marginalize someone just by the way uh, that they, they uh, you know, by how they're born or, or by their gender or by orientation or by whatever that looks like. I can't believe that there's a God that would do that. And I go, yeah, yeah. And my favorite part of having these conversations is going like this. I go, I don't believe in that God either. And people go, really? And then it's a big, good conversation. Like, and this is the thing. This is what I love about this. I love having these conversations because I believe our church has a holy calling. And I believe our church's holy calling is to deconstruct our idea of God. I think that's our church's holy calling. Anybody here have gone through some deconstruction? Things feel a little different than they used to feel, your relationship with God than when you were growing up? Deconstruction. Hurts a little bit, doesn't it? Hurts a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. It's hard to think about God in different ways, um, but I think our church has a holy calling to deconstruct God. Here's what else I think our church has. I think we have a holy calling to reconstruct God. I think we have a calling to break it down and then to bring it back up, to say that there is good news in our scriptures, uh, that there is a God. Uh, yeah, we have some tough things we have to think through and work out, but we can wrestle through them together. That's a good thing. I think there's a way uh, to look at, at God and at Jesus in ways that aren't like get into heaven club, but are like, how do we live out a life together as a community? We can reconstruct this and it's good news. And so that's what I want to do today. Because for me personally, in my life, my life has been reconstructed. My God has been reconstructed because of this Palm Sunday story. So I want to tell it to you. Uh, how many people grew up with Palm Sunday? A lot of you. First service, not so many. Uh, Palm Sunday uh, usually went like this for me. And I don't know if it went this way for you, but usually what would happen is I would go to church and they would say, people are shouting, Hosanna, and blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was wonderful. And they accept Jesus, but then pretty soon they reject Jesus. And so follower, you have a choice. You can accept Jesus or you can reject Jesus, right? And that's sort of the way I heard it growing up. Uh, and, and I'm being a little bit, that's a little hyperbolic. There was more involved, but that was the basic gist, right? So I would hear this message on Palm Sunday, like, wow, I can praise Jesus and say Hosanna, or I can reject Jesus. I better praise Jesus, and I would rededicate myself for like the 19th time, right? Anybody else rededicate themselves 19 times? Come on, where you at? I want to see those hands. Get them up. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and that, that left me with anxiety around Palm Sunday. Some anxiety there. I don't think that's what Palm Sunday is about. What is Palm Sunday about? How do we work it out? How do we reconstruct? Let's tell the story, okay? I think we got to get into some of the historical and political aspects of Palm Sunday in order for us to really grasp this. So are you willing to do that with me? Let's talk about treachery and deceit and war and violence, all right? There's this king. His name is Jonathan. Great name, great king. And he uh, was the king of the Maccabees. Maccabees were the people that protected Israel. They protected Jerusalem. Uh, and so uh, Israel lived in a time of relative peace, which, as we know in our scriptures, wasn't often, right? But they were living in a time of relevant peace. And in this peace, um, life was good for Israel, for Jerusalem, for the Maccabees. Well, there was this king, and his name was Trypho. He was a king of Syria. 
And Trypho wanted to attack and take over Jerusalem because it has a lot of socioeconomic properties that make sense. And so he wanted to do this, but he also knew that Jonathan and the Maccabees had allies. And the allies they had were uh, Greece, Sparta, Roman Empire, this little upstart Roman Empire. They weren't quite the big Roman Empire yet. And, uh, and so he knew he couldn't attack because their allies were too big, too strong. And so what Trypho did is he got trifling. And what he did, come on, laugh with me, people. That's terrible. Um, and what he did is he hatched a plan. Now, how many of you have seen Game of Thrones? Okay, how many of you have seen the Red Wedding episode of Game of Thrones? No joke. No joke. This is what Trypho does. He says, I'm going to throw a party. And he throws this party, invites the whole Maccabee royal family there, and they all are eating, and it's a feast. Think Red Wedding, right, if you've seen it. And it's a feast, and it's this thing. And, and Jonathan gets so comfortable that he sends away three-quarters of the Maccabean army, sends them back uh, to Israel, okay, because he's so comfortable at this party. And then sure enough, doors lock. Everybody gets slaughtered. All the Maccabean royals get slaughtered. And uh, Trypho takes over for a short period of time as the ruler of Israel. And it's a bad time. But... There's one person he didn't slaughter, Jonathan's brother, Simon. And Simon calls on his allies. He calls on Greece and Sparta and Rome. And the allies come in. They defeat Trypho. Israel is its own country again. It's amazing. I want to read to you from the book of Maccabees in the Apocrypha. Because this is what it says. It says, in the 23rd day of the second month in the year of 142 BC, there was a great celebration in the city because this terrible threat to security of Israel had come to an end. Simon and his men entered the fort singing hymns of praise and thanksgiving while carrying palm branches. Wink, wink, nod, nod. We got that? And playing harp, cymbals, and lyres. And then it goes on from there about some of the decrees that Simon issued. Okay, are we starting to get a little bit of a better picture of why we involve palms or why we're having Palm Sunday? It's starting to happen. Okay, let's keep going. Because that Roman Empire, that little upstart Roman Empire, becomes big Roman Empire. And when they become big Roman Empire, they eventually take over Israel. A king named Demetrius took over Israel. And when Demetrius took over Israel, and any other nation for that matter, Demetrius, or that king did the same thing every time. He required that there be a military parade. I'm not even going to get to the parallels of today. <laughs> required that there be a military parade. Uh, and in this military parade, there'll be generals and there'll be the best weaponry and there'll be soldiers and there'll be colors and, and, and everybody would be there. They, they, you know, they, all the captured soldiers and everything else. And guess what this king forced people to lay on the ground before them? Say it with me. Palms. Palms. You're starting to get the idea of Palm Sunday a little bit. Starting to see. So when Israel's oppressed as a nation, every year they are forced to lay palms on the ground for the Roman Empire that's coming through to show all their might. Okay. So then Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and we have a poor, starving, oppressed country and Jesus starts performing miracles, miracles like feeding people. And if you're poor, starving, and oppressed and you hear about a man who's feeding people, what are you going to do? You're going to follow, right? So they start to follow. And Jesus is doing some other things that make sense. And all of a sudden, people start thinking, you know what, this Jesus guy, he could be our Messiah. Now, he's not the Messiah like we think, like this whole, you either accept Jesus as your personal savior or you reject Jesus and move along. no political messiah, like overturned government's messiah, like revolution messiah. Like that's the kind of messiah that they start thinking of him as. And in fact, they read their scriptures and it, it's from um, the book of Zechariah. It's this prophecy. And it says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey on the colt, a full of a donkey. Oh, what Jesus do? Jesus is going 
to get a donkey. We'll get to that in a minute. But what will happen when that king comes in riding on a donkey? Well, the next verse. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So let's deconstruct a little bit. This is not your accept Jesus as your personal savior reject. This is a very big political social story. Do we get it? There's a prophecy in place that says this person's going to ride in on a colt and they're going to defeat the war horses and the chariots and oh my gosh, where are all those things happening? Tell me people, they're happening at the, the parade on the other side. And so all of a sudden, this verse happens. Jesus says this, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, say the Lord needs it. So now, the prophecy's coming true. Zechariah, he's got the colt. This man's been feeding people. He's been taking care of people. Oh wow, this guy could be the Messiah. And so there's a military parade over on one side. So we see this sort of innocuous Bethpage and Bethany. Like that stuff usually bores us, right? We're just like, whatever. Admit it. Nobody wants to admit it. Um, we see that. That actually is like a, a, a prophecy as well. Because what it says in Zechariah, it says that on one side is going to be power and might, and on the other side is going to be the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to win. Well, guess what? Bethpage was on one side, Bethany's on the other side, and here comes Jesus. So word starts to get out amongst the crowd. And word starts to get out amongst the crowd and they go and they're like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, our political Messiah. And what do they start putting down on the ground? Palm branches. Now these palm branches aren't because Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. These palm branches, put them up, show them. If you got them, show them. These are acts of civil disobedience. That's what you have here. They're, they're, they're disobeying, they're subverting the Roman government by putting down palms. That's what's going on. They're saying, you are going to be our new king. You are going to be our new Roman Caesar. That's what you're going to be. And then the Pharisees get scared. They're like, hey, if you don't stop shouting, you're going to get in trouble. Like, if you don't stop shouting, the Romans on the other side, with their big parade, they're going to hear about this, and you're going to be in trouble. And Jesus says, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks are going to shout out, this is going to happen. And so what we have is we have a Palm Sunday story that is not about, I'm going to choose or, or reject. It's a political story up until this point. Are we deconstructing a little bit? A little bit. But here's the thing. Just like I don't think this story is about personal lords and saviors, I don't think this story is all about politics either. I think the reason this story is such good news, the reason that this Palm Sunday story matters to us so much is because I believe that Jesus, in through this story, is talking about a third way of doing life. There's a third way to do it, and this third way is the good news. So let's reconstruct. Y'all down to reconstruct? Okay. Jesus does this. He goes into Jerusalem, and he weeps for it. What does he say when he weeps for it? Um, he says, uh, if you even knew had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And what he's basically saying is you've taken religion and you've conflated it with the empire. You've conflated it with nationalism to the point where you think I'm a political savior. You don't think I'm your, your God who's showing you what God looks like when God gets God's way, right? That's not what's happening. He's basically saying you've taken religion and you've meshed it with nationalism, patriotism. And I'm not gonna get into the implications. That's what he's saying. Then he goes and destroys the temple. Y'all hear about him destroying the temple? 
I love talking about how Jesus destroyed the temple. Takes a whip, starts turning over tables. This place is a den of thieves. Why does he say that? Because it was. Um, There's a racket happening at the temple. You'd walk into the temple. You were poor, remember? And you have this animal, this lamb maybe. You've cared for it in such a way because you're going to sacrifice this lamb to God and this lamb is going to bear your burdens. It's going to take on your sins and God's going to see you as good again. So you show up at the temple and you have this perfect lamb and the, the, the priests of the temple go, ah, it's not good enough. And you're like, well, what am I going to do? And they say, you can buy one of ours. And they say, well, how much is that? And you go, it's a thousand bucks. And you go, but I don't have a thousand bucks. And I'm like, I guess God doesn't love you then. And they go, fine, I'll pay it. And they go, oh, and by the way, there's a temple tax of 20%. So it's not a thousand bucks, it's really 1,200 bucks. You'd pay it, you'd be broke, you'd be poor. But you have to, because this is the way that God sees you as good. And then what they would do is you would sacrifice their temple lamb, you would leave, somebody else would come in, they would give you your lamb, the one you brought. It was a scam, it was a racket. It was 90% of Jerusalem's economy. So Jesus does that. And you can imagine the religious leaders going, wait a second, all the prophecies are coming true. You rode in on the donkey, all these things are happening, which points to the Messiah. And and these things can only happen if God says that God loves us again. And so we must be doing something right. And Jesus says, no, you got it completely and utterly wrong. And Jesus spends the next week or however many days it is just completely ticking off the religious establishment in whatever way he can. He's like, you have gotten your religion wrong. There is a third way to the point where the religious who are in power do what the religious that are in power always do. They want to kill Jesus. The whole assembly arose and led him off to Pilate. They began to accuse him saying, we have found this man subverting our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar and claiming to be Messiah, a king. It's not an accept or reject, but it's not political either. So what is it? What does Jesus say to Pilate? My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is not of this world. Wait a second, my kingdom's not of this world? What do we think of when we hear my kingdom's not of this world? I, I remember one time, and I've said this before, so just bear with me. I remember one time, my, we were flying in an airplane, and we were like over Pennsylvania, and my daughter was like, is this where heaven is? And I was like, sure. It's over Pittsburgh. <laughs> like, that's it. That's, that's Jesus' kingdom, right? Uh, and, and so we think of the other place, the place we go when we die. My kingdom's not of this world. We're going to wear robes. We're going to lock arms. We're going to sing songs. That's eh, boring. Um, that's what we think of, right? We think of that. What is Jesus talking about? That kingdom wouldn't bother Pilate. That kingdom wouldn't bother the Sanhedrin. It wouldn't bother religious leaders because it wouldn't mess with what's going on right now. So when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he's messing with them in some respects. So why is he messing with them? I love what Greg Boyd says. He says, instead of, saying, instead of Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world, um, Jesus could have said something to the effect of, my kingdom is out of this world. Like, way different than you could ever experience. My kingdom is out of this world. You don't even know about it. And that's sort of a cheesy line. This is out of this world, but I love Jesus saying it. <laughs> and this is what Greg Boyd goes on to say. He says this, he says, the crucial distinction between the two kingdoms is how they provide antithetical answers to the questions of what power one should trust to change ourselves and others. Do you trust power over or power under? Do you trust the power of the sword, the power of external force, or do you trust the influential but non-coercive power of Calvary-like 
love. This isn't a message about accept or reject. It's not a political message. It's a message about this out-of-this-world kingdom. What does this third way, this out-of-this-world kingdom look like? I want to read it because I think it's important. It looks sacrificial. It's Calvary-like love. It's Jesus riding on a donkey, all right? It's Jesus hanging on a cross, not as a transaction, but in solidarity with the suffering of humanity because we are so incredibly loved that that's what Jesus does, right? That, that's why it's this third way. It's this out-of-this-world kingdom. Palm Sunday, friends, if we're reconstructing, is the out-of-this-world kingdom, and we are being invited into it. You are being invited into it. What does the out-of-this-world kingdom look like? When Jesus, he heals the mentally and physically challenged. Now, the mentally and physically challenged, according to religion, you know, they were people who uh, messed up before God. They sinned or their parents sinned. And Jesus says, no, in my out-of-this-world kingdom, uh, they are made new. They're made whole because God made them perfectly in God's image. That's what happens in my out-of-this-world kingdom. None are left back. All are affirmed regardless. And in the out-of-this-world kingdom, Jesus heals on the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is the rule. And Jesus says, in my out-of-this-world kingdom, love, affirmation, and restoration trump rules every single time. And in my out-of-this-world kingdom, I don't follow the rules that say don't sit at table with women. I sit with them and invite them to eat with me because in my kingdom, in this out-of-this-world kingdom, everyone is on an equitable plane. There's nobody who starts off below or above just because of the way they were born. And in my kingdom, in my kingdom, you are so loved. You are so incredibly loved that God loves you so much that God wants you and wants to see you and says you are broken and you are hurting. I could see that. And so I suffer with you on the cross because I want you to know you are affirmed and you've always been affirmed and you've never been separated from me. That is God's out of this world kingdom. Palm Sunday is about being accepted and invited into God's out of this world kingdom. That's what it is. It's the third way. So how do we deal with this reconstruction? My guess is there are some of us here who are just tired and you're anxious and you have like a problem or something and it's just like, it exhausts you. Your mind is moving and you're like, how can, what am I gonna do? There's a relationship that's not working. There's abuse that you've had in your life that, that just eats at you. There's a sadness that won't go away for some reason. To be accepted into this out of this world kingdom doesn't mean you snap your fingers and things get perfect. It doesn't. But it means that you are wholly loved and fully affirmed. And that issue, whatever it might be, does not define you. What defines you is that you are a member of this out-of-this-world kingdom. You've been told that you're less than. You are, that does not define you. You are a member of this out-of-this-world kingdom. You've been told that, that you can't for some reason. That does not define you. You are part and invited to this out-of-this-world kingdom. You've been told that the way you're born, something's wrong with you, you're separate from God. That is a lie. God says all are invited into this out-of-this-world kingdom. And so today, if you're one of those broken people, not that your problems are going to go away like this, they won't. But sit back, take a breath, and say, I'm perfect. I'm made in the image of God, and I'm a child of God. And that's all I have to know for today. And maybe some of us are feeling great. Who's feeling great? Good. I, I think maybe this week I am too. I went to Atlantic City. But anyway, which is not why I'm feeling great. But anyway, I was just trying to think of the good things that happened this week. <laughs> that, was a, that threw me off. Anyway, why do I bring that up? I bring it up because maybe people who are feeling good, maybe who are feeling wrapped 
in this out of this world kingdom. We sit at the feet of those who are marginalized, oppressed, or broken right now. And we say, how can I help? How can I be an ally? And maybe for us in this out of the world kingdom, it's recognizing that everybody has value before God. So instead of seeing something as an interruption, see it as an opportunity. That's how we work in this out of this world kingdom. How many people marched yesterday? Who marched with Forefront yesterday? We had a few people at first service. Not only did they march, but they came to first service. I love that. We didn't march. We didn't do that together. We didn't do that because we have a political affiliation. We did it because we believe that in this out of this world kingdom, we believe that God affirms all humanity and life is way more important than anything else, especially being killed by guns, right? That's why we're there. And in our out of this world kingdom, when every time we, we partner with Arab American Family Support Center, Nomi Network, Restore, St. Augustine's, any of those, we're saying there are people who might have less than right now, and our job in this out of this world kingdom is to lift them up to a place of equity, to a place where they are on the same plane as us, knowing they are loved by God. And that's true of anyone who feels marginalized. That's what our church does. And so I'm proud of this church. I'm proud that we can deconstruct. And I'm proud that we don't see this as an accept or reject. I'm proud that we don't see this as just political, just a political story. But I want us to continue to reconstruct. And so I invite you to the third way, this out-of-this-world kingdom that compels us, that begs us to live out the radical, inclusive, affirming, never-ending love of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. God, we need you uh, because it was, some of us are broken and some of us went to Atlantic City. Uh, but we need you regardless. And so we are grateful that you say, you know, my way is not an exclusive club that gets us into some other world. But my, my good news is the fact that my kingdom of heaven comes to earth and we get to be a part of it. Keep reminding us of that. Spur us into action. And when we can't... Uh, be moved into action any longer. Allow us to rest in the fact that we are loved in this kingdom. We pray this good news. We thank you for this good news and we pray this all in your name. Amen.